We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and today we're going to do chapter five. So how are you, Bob? I'm freezing. I'm, I was going to say I'm warmer than you. I mean, our temperatures might be similar, but we're built for that up here. Yes, I, I would, that, that's the biggest problem. I got a heat pump, which can't suck heat out of 15 degree air. And so it can't keep up. And we have pipes in the outside walls of the garage and the front of the house I've got a heater blowing against the inside garage wall next to the pipe so they can keep it from freezing. <laughs> well, when I saw you on the video, you know, before we be began, you had your vest, your warm vest on. My polar fleece me, vest and yeah. my flannel shirt, and you're sitting there in t-shirt. <laughs> it made me chuckle. <laughs> oh, goodness. Hey, Hampton, before we get started, um, uh, I saw a thing on TV this week that really disturbed me. You know how my natural bent is is kind of like a dog with a certain scent. Um, you know, I'll just follow that scent whenever I catch it to its source. And uh, Kathy and I had the TV on, which I, I don't think we've watched TV together in a couple years. But we didn't have anything to do. I think it was two nights ago. In uh, the Emmy Awards were on, so she she sort of gets into that stuff as far as you know the fashion and all that kind of thing. So anyway, we're watching it, and Hampton, it was the most in-your-face militant presentation of you know the alphabet soup stuff, the LGBTQ, and so on that I've ever seen, and there was a spirit to it. I mean, there was, they were drawing lines in the sand, so to speak, about here's where we're coming from. Here's what we've accomplished. Here's what you're going to see. And then unspoken, you know, was don't even try to slow us down. Right. It, it, it was, it was sickening, you know, especially like the main presenter for this one award, who knows how many awards they give out and all that. But this this woman is, you know, lengthy introduction. She comes up with her whole crew. There's maybe 20 people on the stage and she's holding her trophy. And the first thing she says is my wife and I. And you're just going, man, I, I can't watch this. Yeah. And I tend to think anybody who watches that stuff is going to get sucked in because the minutes I did watch were as far as production value, entertainment. It, yeah. it was as high as you could get. Really well, really well done. And you'll get sucked into that. Anybody who's watching TV, you're you're gonna get sucked into that. That is a the devil's vacuum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. that's sad. So anyway, just wanted to mention that. Um, so why don't we follow our pattern? <clears throat> we could hardly do anything better, could we, than just read the scriptures? 
So we're going to do uh, Romans 5. What's this, a pack? Yeah, Romans 5. But I was going to say, yeah, Packer, J.I. Packer, Chapter 5. That's how I keep up with where we are in Romans as we're on the same chapter as Packer. So Packer is going to be talking about God incarnate. So let's see what Paul in Romans chapter 5 has to say. Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace (coughs) with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than because we've now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, since we've been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So then, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all people, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but there's no accounting for sin when there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam, who's a type of the coming one, transgressed. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? And if the gift is not like the one who sinned for judgment resulting from the one transgression led to condemnation, but the gracious gift from the many failures led to justification. For if by the transgression of the one man, death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through transgression, so too, Through the one righteous act came righteousness leading to life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. Now the law came in so that the transgression may increase, but where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That was Romans chapter five. A lot of, a lot of theology in that one. <laughs> and, I, and it makes a, Adam never existed, not a possibility. That's true. All things about the one man, Adam. Right. Yeah. How about, how about this? You know, especially given our recent tour through Stephen Dempster, 
would you fill in the blank the way Paul did? So let me read verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one man, death blank through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness blank in life through the one, Jesus Christ? And of course, Paul filled in that blank with rain. Right. And I I just don't believe we tend to think in those terms enough. It's dominion. Right. Right. That that's the background upon which he's writing. So mm-hmm. and you see that in verse 21 too. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. So anyway, that's what stuck out stuck out to me. Very good. Okay, give me one sec. Let's uh turn to another passage. <clears throat> because Dems or uh Packer's gonna be going over this. Of of the gospel accounts, Hampton, which one's your favorite? I like John a lot. <laughs> That's almost a universal <laughs> answer, isn't it? Yeah. So I've puzzled why that's the case over the years here's what i've come up with this i don't present this as definitive just something to think about so matthew mark and luke are called theologically the synoptic gospels like synoptic like seen together like a symphony in music right so the fun part of that is the music and then the sim s-y-m in that case like together the music presented together so matthew mark and luke are the sin optic so the scene together gospels and they're sort of narrated they're the narrator's and i, I don't mean like they, they don't have human authors i'm just calling Matthew, Mark, and Luke narrators in this case are going through the story with you. In John, the narration is omniscient, right? John will often say things like, we thought this, but what was really happening was X. So like we, we thought we, he was talking about, the temple, but he was really talking about the temple of his body, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's omniscience, right? You're getting this perspective um, from above. So it's, uh, it's much different than the, than the synoptic gospels. And I think we gravitate towards that. So let's read the prologue to John's gospel because Everything he's going to say is wrapped up in the first 18 verses. It's like the next 21 chapters are exposition of these first 18 verses. So John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was fully God. The word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. A man came, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right 
to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. John testified about him and shouted out, This one was the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than I am, because he existed before me. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only one himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Any comments? No. Okay. To read that because Packer's going to be talking about that. Okay. And I have a comment. So, you know, I mentioned previously, but I've said this on many podcasts that, um, you know, I have that sense of smell like a dog for the devil. Mm -hmm. So did you know the most common miracle recorded in the Gospels is um, exorcism? Oh, really? Is that interesting? And in in the Synoptic Gospels, there's points where they just summarize it because so they just will say something like, "He just did this all day long." Do you know how many exorcisms in the Gospel of John? No, none, none. Now, what? Why is that? Why would he leave that out? Right. Well, look at verses uh, 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. And I think that's John's summary of satanic conflict. He puts it in terms of light and dark. So for him, the whole thing, all 21 chapters of John are about that conflict. <laughs> Not necessarily limiting it to just exorcism. So that's my take on, on that part of it. Interesting. Yeah. One last uh, section to read. This is such a famous passage. So Philippians chapter 2. So this is Paul. <clears throat> uh, I'll pick it up in verse 5. We'll read through verse 11. You should have the same attitude. This is Philippians chapter 2. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, observations there, Hampton. Well, like every, like 10 <laughs> observations on every line of that. <laughs> yeah. The incarnation, hard to understand. Well, yeah, so a couple things. One in verse C, these are just cursory things just for clarification. Maybe not 
so cursory, but who, though he existed in the form of God, does not mean like kind of like God, like he was only like God in his form, but not that's not what that means. Form, that Greek word morphe, used theologically like this, has more the essence of essence. Right, who right. though he existed in the essence of God is what Paul's saying. Not he was kind of like God. For, form's not a lower term, and you I see that what we would be a better English word for that. That's hard because morphe, you know, that gets translated by the word English word form all the time. Right, and then that is a legitimate translation. But I mean, to me, that the core of that term is essence and the, the way you see, see it do you know that for sure look at the second line of verse seven but he emptied himself taking on the form of a slave he was a slave right he wasn't kind of a slave right the s he's the essence of servanthood right so i just want to clarify that then one last thing every tongue Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And where? Every tongue that's located where? In heaven, In... And on earth, and under the earth. <laughs> so the angelic realm will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. You mean there are those in the angelic realm that don't? Yes currently but they all will and who who are those that don't well the demons right so just wanted to point that out i think we're ready for packer now okay so he's gonna talk about jesus christ so being a man of the street hampton whereas packer is a man of the halls of scholarship right? He's an ivory tower guy. I bet he would hate that description though, <laughs> but he's a, he's a, he's a, see, I'm just a guy, a man of the street. So to me, I would think before we even began this chapter, like, so what would Packer talk about if he's going to focus on the person of Jesus Christ? This chapter is titled God incarnate. Um, kind of categories would he use to synthesize his message and i would say well what i would want you to do is tell me who he is tell me what he said tell me what he did <laughs> so theologically you'd say something like the words and works of the second person of the trinity right mm -hmm. i'm more like i got this guy named jesus who is he what did he say? What did he do? So let's think about it that way. Here's how Packer starts out. It's no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe. For the realities with which it deals pass our understanding. But it's said that so many make faith harder than it need be by finding difficulties in the wrong place in the wrong places. Take the atonement, for instance. Many feel difficulty there. How, they ask, can we believe that the death of Jesus of Nazareth, one man expiring on a Roman gibbet, put away a world's sins? Well, didn't we read that in Romans 5? We did. <laughs> That's how. But anyway, how can that death have any bearing on God's forgiveness of our sins? today so let me ask you a question this way hampton <clears throat> it's why are things i i know what he's saying is correct like people like my family for instance my natural family that i grew up in they don't believe what i believe you know if i tell them the gospel which i have numerous times they don't they don't even understand that right let alone like believe it they they don't it's hard for them to grasp 
though I know even foolishness, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's right. Even though, right. Romans one is in my mind. And even as I'm talking to him, I'm going, you actually do know what I'm telling you and you're suppressing, (laughs) but regardless, it, it appears as foolishness to them outwardly. Um, are, well, I guess what I'm trying to ask is this. In, in your thinking, is there a central hurdle, a main hurdle, that if people got over this hurdle, the rest of it would all fall into place? They want, they want to be their own boss. They don't want to submit to God. They, don't to, they like their sin too much. Well, I think that's certainly the case. Where my mind runs is this. There clearly was a time when the universe did not exist. Right? Every physicist knows that. They know there was a beginning. So, you know, often the label for that is the Big Bang or something to that effect. But they know. Every person knows the earth, the whole creation hasn't been here forever, regardless of the absurd dates they put on it, right? right. Oh, like the earth is 700 million years, you know, whatever absurdity. I don't think it's more than 10,000. I literally don't think that. In fact, right. I think it's less than that. Right. And I think you can prove that scientifically, but I don't care. Go to 700 million if you want. There still was a beginning. And for me, you can't have a beginning without a beginner. You can't get something out of nothing. So if there was just nothing eternally, you couldn't get something. And nothing couldn't have it. Nothing can explode. (laughs) Right. Right. So... You know what I'm driving at. There has to be an ultimate cause. There has to be, and you could label that a deity. I don't even care if you put on it right now, the label Yahweh, you know, the personal name of that deity. But just there had to be a creator that created everything supernatural, something above the natural creation that created it. There has to be. I don't I don't know any way around that. I know. Many deny that, but they don't do so with any logic. They just do it out of defiance. Right. Log- logically, you can't deny that. So if you could accept that, then what's the problem with miracles? Isn't creation the gigantic miracle that is undeniable? So then why yeah, struggle? I he's trying to say a subset of that if, if jesus, yes if jesus yes. if god couldn't become man then why do you have a problem with miracles right you know right and i would say well if god could create the universe then he can become man but there's no limits on what an omnipotent creator could do right and i think he also is saying that the incarnation is even harder to understand and believe than the resurrection because if God became man, then be, be, coming back to life is easy. Yeah, and right. And what I'm driving at is, well, once you accept the initial fact of creation, then no miracle is a stumbling block. Right. He could do whatever he wants. Right. He's not limited by the electromagnetic world we live in. So, right. And we covered a lot of that at the, uh, you know, in our core beliefs creation's a big deal we we spent a lot of time on that that that's important so well, in the resurrection achilles heels book was really oh, it's a great book yeah right so anyway he talks about coming to grips with the the miracles of, particularly the incarnation right because he's going to talk about jesus so the next little section is the greatest mystery but in fact the real difficulty The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all, 
It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. The second person of the Godhead became the second man. I mean, I could nitpick that, but okay. I'm glad. Well, that was what Romans 5 was about. Yeah, sure was. Um, you know, he doesn't make much, even though he put it in there. I'm so glad he said he became the second man. So man, then he's quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 47. And that literally Paul wrote the second Adam. Right? Right. I think that's the best way to understand that. Jesus is the second Adam. What was the purpose of Adam? To rule the earth. Well, here's Jesus, the second Adam. Right? The cleanup hitter. You maybe struck out our first guy, but now our fourth hitter is coming up. Second in this case. Right? You're not going to strike him out. <laughs> and he is going to rule just as Adam was designed to do. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the Christmas message. But right. So then he goes on to say, here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. So the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Those are big big, big chunks of Christian theology, really big chunks. Do you remember when you were in school taking uh, Trinitarianism? I do. Did you have how? Um, I think I had Bruce Miller. So do you remember how? He probably retired right about when yeah, I was. I don't know that I ever had him for anything. Yeah, but he was very good. And I remember... I mean, right, I attended all the classes, took all the tests and this and that. But I remember a little bit, this is a confession, kind of zoning out in that because I was like, well, the Bible states there's one God. Often states that. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the New Testament, you find out three persons are called God. So... In a nutshell, that's the Trinity, right? Right. So so I sat there going, well, I you're never really gonna understand that. There's well, one God. Whole class. Yeah. So what what are we doing? You know, what am I doing here <laughs> hours a week? You know, you're gonna ramble on and on. And he was a great teacher. I had no problem with that. But you're never gonna understand that. It's just stated that way. Right. So I'm thankful that I wasn't born with the kind of small as my brain is. It never struggled with, I need to grasp this stuff. I, I just felt like, well, I don't need to grasp it. I just need to know, you know, I'm never going to be able to grasp it. <laughs> so anyway, and then he refers to John 1.14, which we read. Moving down, there's a paragraph that begins, if Jesus had been no more than a very remarkable godly man, the difficulties in believing what the New Testament tells us about his life and work. See, now he's getting theological. Remember, I said, well, for me, it's better if you just say what he said and what he did (laughs) would be truly mountainous. But if Jesus was the same person as the eternal word, the father's agent in creation, through whom also he made the worlds, it's no wonder if fresh acts of created power marked his coming into this world and his life in it and his exit from it. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. He was truly God the Son. It's much more startling that he should die than that he should rise again. Yeah. That's true. That's a good 
It's a good way to say that. So you remember in John, of course, Jesus saying, no one takes my life from me. Right? How could you? Can't kill yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> Tis mystery all. The immortal dies, wrote Wesley. But there's no comparable mystery in the immortal's resurrection. And if the immortal son of God did really submit to taste death, it is not strange that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was divine, to see how here's a quibble. It's just me, Hampton, but that little clause, once we grant that Jesus was divine, why don't we say once we grant that Jesus is divine? I always think of it that way. I hardly ever use past tense for him. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. It becomes unreasonable. So once we grant that Jesus is divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. That's true. It's all of a piece, hangs together completely. The incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, right? But it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. That's right. So it's sort of like, you know, in textual criticism, we have internal and external evidence. Right. It's like internally, the scriptures all make sense. If you just get inside that story and take it for what it is, it all hangs together. Makes perfect sense. Right. If you stand outside of it, yeah, it's kind of hard to swallow Jonah, uh, pun intended, that Jonah was in a fish for three days. But not if you get inside the story. It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, okay, I think we're ready for the next section. Next section is called, Who is this child? Right? In the street language, right? Who is this? Who's this guy? <laughs> the Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us in some detail how the Son of God came to this world. So does John, right? The Word became flesh. <laughs> and what? He, I think the, the uh, N-E-E-T, your Bible says, uh, and like traveled with us, or what did it say? Well, let's get it. John, John 1 14. Well, John 1 14. I'm there. Let's see. Uh, took up residence. Right. Now, the, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. Okay. So that's the word tabernacled, is how you would literally say what John wrote. That's how his original hearers heard that. And of course, the instant you hear that, you're back to Exodus, right? Where they're building the tabernacle so that God could dwell with them. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean. That the internal evidence of the script all hangs together. It all makes perfect sense. Right. So in Matthew and Luke, right there at a, he calls it, he was born outside a small hotel. <laughs> it's a good way to say it. Which one do you think? Like a uh, Motel 6, <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> the Ritz. Wasn't the Ritz, right? Some little, little, that's a small hotel in an obscure Jewish village in the great days of the Roman Empire. Stories usually prettied up when we tell it. Christmas by Christmas, but it's really rather beastly and cruel. The reason why Jesus was born outside the hotel is that it was full. Nobody would offer a bed to a woman in labor so that she had to have her baby in the stables and cradle him in a cattle trough. The story is told dispassionately and without comment, but no thoughtful reader can help shuddering at the picture of callousness and degradation that it draws. Okay, so that's 
I'm not going to quibble with Packer. I'm just going to say this because this is interesting to me. So your thoughts, you know, as you read the scriptures can go almost anywhere. But I think it's a good practice to keep the thoughts anchored to the text. For instance, does Matthew or Luke make a big deal in a sense that... No, it's really told matter-of-factly. Right. So it's not wrong to run down that trail, you know? And I understand perfectly what Packer's saying, but those authors don't do that. So I'd rather have my thoughts anchored to the text. But but it is true that humility is a huge part of the presentation of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the, you know, the irony is so rich. This is the yeah. king of the universe. The universe is, is born in a stable. So that's a pretty, <laughs> right. pretty long drop, if you will. When right. born in the palace. Right. So that's understood through irony, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what? Packers driving at not so much through through explicit links to the text so it is not however to draw moral lessons from it that the evangelist tells the story okay that's a right that's exactly what we're saying Mm -hmm. they didn't tell that for its morality for them the point of the story lies not in the circumstances of the birth except in the one respect that it fulfilled prophecy by taking place in Bethlehem, but rather in identity of the baby. About this, the New Testament has two thoughts to convey. We have indicated them already. Now let us look at them in more detail. The baby born at Bethlehem was God. And I would say is God, (laughs) but very, very good. Oh, so I'm not going to read too much of the next few paragraphs, but he does make the point, and this is good about the term son of God, because I think we tend to misunderstand that. Like I think most people and street people, like me, hear that as um, sort of like a religious title. But I think it's best understood by switching the words around. Just say, God the Son. Right. Well, it it almost seems polytheistic. Right. But that term, Son of God, is loaded. That's not just less than God. That's that's a big deal. So he makes you it, still he talks in here next page. However, John knew this phrase son of God was tainted with misleading associations in the minds of his readers. And he talks about Greek mythology. You know, you got Zeus having relations with yeah Hercules women, and then you know sons of God were not deity. They might be strong right. like Hercules, but they weren't gods. And so he he says that's part of the reason that John writes the first 18 verses of his book to dispel. I, th- I think that's true. And I, I think it's also why uh, Packer doesn't go into this at all. It's a gosh, you go into a theological library, you could find hundreds, thousands, literally, of volumes on the subject of the son of man. And I think that's why Jesus uses that term so often as like what Pecker said, because it was not uh, a fully understood term during the days of his earthly ministry. And so he, he can would have say been more confused with them. Yes. The mythology. Yes, so he can say son of man, and it allows him to fill in the blank because they don't really have 
material on that. I mean, they they know they've got generally. Daniel. They got Daniel, but that's a they don't have precision on that. So he's allowed to use that term so he can fill in the blank. So, right, Packer makes some good points about that. Then he goes on. Then he gets into John's prologue. Right. So John takes up this figure and proceeds to tell us seven things about the divine word. So in other words, about Jesus in the first 18 verses of the gospel of John. Number one, in the beginning was the word. And then Packer says, here is the words eternity. He had no beginning of his own. When other things began he was. So my favorite passage about that, right, in the Gospel of John, the Pharisee, Pharisees are saying, hey, you're making yourself out to be God. By the way, when people claim today that Jesus never claimed that, well, that's certainly how the Pharisees understood what he was saying. Right. So, yes, he was claiming that. And they say that specifically, that that's really bothering them. Okay, so in his response to, hey, you're making yourself out to be God, and you're not, you're talking about Abraham, and you're not even 30 years old, or, you know, you're barely 30. Abraham lived, you know, 1800 years ago. And Jesus says, well, before Abraham was born, I am. That how, how much stronger could you say I'm God? I don't, I don't think you could. And and when you say things in a little bit of a roundabout way, you're doing that for impact. Like if he just flat out said, "Well, I'm God," that is not as strong as strange as that sounds as saying, "Before Abraham was born, I am." Right. Because that way, the implication, yeah, which is, you would translate Yahweh, God's personal name. (laughs) So, the second point in John's prologue, according to Packer, and the word was with God. Here is the word's personality, the power that fulfills God's purposes is the power of a distinct personal being, one who stands in an eternal relation to God with active fellowship. So it's interesting, you know, the word was with God, so that you see Packer's point about that. But that's also uh, the word with is part of one of his names. He's got countless names, but Emmanuel is one of the prominent ones. So Ma- Manu is us, El is God, Im at the beginning with God with us. Right. John's point in the prologue was he was with God. And like the synoptic gospels are saying he was with us. And that's his role, right? To mediate between God and man with God and with us. So you you need both of those in order to effectively mediate. Third point. And the word was God. Here's the words deity. Though personally distinct from the Father, he's not a creature. He is divine in himself, as the Father is. The mystery with which this verse confronts us is thus the mystery of personal distinctions within the unity of the Godhead. But yeah, it's a really strong statement about Jesus's deity and the word was God. Point four, through him, all things were made. Here is the word creating. You know, that's kind of interesting. Don't, don't most people think like, make it, let's make it personal. A believer, don't they think, you know, God made me? And it, that's not that's not wrong, but you could be more precise about that. Jesus made you. Yeah. But we don't usually think of it. Like, don't we think of God as the creator? All things were made through him. 
It's a reference to Jesus. It's interesting. So anyway, point five. In him was life. Here is the word animating. There's no physical life in the realm of created things except in him and through him. Here's the Bible answer to the problem of the origin and continuance of life in all its forms. Life is given and maintained by the word. Created things do not have life in themselves, but life in the word, the second person of the Godhead. There's an interesting correlation to that. <clears throat> so geez, all things are held together by Jesus. So the word for destroy in Greek, apolumi, you know, is really to let go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's in, he doesn't need to do anything actively to destroy he something. Stop holding it all together. Yeah. He could passively just let you go. Imagine that amount of power. <laughs> yeah. That, that is so infinite to hold all the molecules of all of, you know, the universe together. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love those classes in, in college. I wish I'd have done a better job in them, but yeah, I took a lot of science classes. You were, and I didn't know it at the time, but really I'm learning about God. You know, imagine all the different kinds of bonds that are discussed in chemistry and mm -hmm. physics, you know, the covalent bonds, the ionic bonds. And this, he's, he is those bonds. He's holding all of those together. I mean, it's just so fascinating. So <clears throat> next point, number six, and that life was the light of men. So again, that's John chapter one, verse four. Here's the word revealing. In giving life, he gives light to. That's to say all people receive intimations of God from the very fact of being alive in God's world. And this, no less than the fact that they are alive, is due to the work of the word. So you want light in your life. Um, it just comes from God. Think how dark, you know, again, back to those Emmy Awards. I mean, that's what I saw was just darkness. You can't see any any light, regardless of how great the spotlights were and how pretty the dresses were and this and that. That was darkness. Verse 7, the word became flesh. Here's the word incarnate. The baby in the manger at Bethlehem was none other than the eternal word of God. We talked about that. That's John 1.14. That word's literally tabernacled. So then his second point, about all this stuff that's was a pretty good sermon right there on all those seven points those seven yeah points on those first 18 verses of john well i mean <laughs> good gracious so first so you could preach first 18 verses of john for almost for a lifetime but you are correct you know but it's interesting let me draw that out just a little bit it's interesting to me um the way the Biblical accounts are written in that, again, those first 18 verses are exposited by the next 21 chapters. So they're, they're the fleshing out of that core content of the first 18 verses. Now, there's also what I would call almost approaches a commentary on the whole book of John. And that's the letters of John. First, second, and third John almost function that way. Like, here's how to read this material correctly, particularly as opposed to here's people who are reading it incorrectly, right? Which at that time would have been the Gnostics. Which is sort of the Tanakhish, if you will. <laughs> you've got yeah. You've got the yeah. events listed as the in the historical books, and then you've got the commentary. Yes, it's exactly like remember. Mom was a good Old Testament guy. So. Yes, so the way we've 
you know, at my weak attempted humor have explained that about Paul, for instance, you know, when Paul went to kindergarten, what subject did he study? Bible. Bible. <laughs> and those, then when he graduated to first grade, he got Bible right. and then second grade Bible. And John's the same way. Yeah. Right. There's, they're so Jewish in their perspective. Thank goodness. You know, by God's grace, they are. So that whole story hangs together. So they'll often, like you said, state the narrative of the events that went down, and then they'll comment on that. So good job, Hampton. So anyway, Packer's uh, next section, that was stressing what we just read was stressing Jesus's deity. And then the second point, the baby born at Bethlehem was God made man. We talked about that a fair amount. At least I did. I think I was dragging you along. I think you, I don't even think you held my hand in that section. I think you kind of kept a larger and larger distance for quite some time. When when I said it wasn't that big a step down. <laughs> right. But I think I think you see this, right? Obviously, I'm not exalting. Well, I sort of am exalting man, but not in a Shirley McLean kind of way. Not in a humanistic way, but in a biblical way. In the fact that it's made in made the image of God or as the image. The image, and Jesus is called that, right? In Colossians, the perfect image. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a weird way that that's not that big a step down. But he is human. And so he experienced all the limitations of being human. So... Next section in Packer is good one, born to die. So, yeah, why not just show up as God? Why do you, why do you have to show up as a man? I, let me pose that. Die? In, yeah, in a very serious way. And you've given an even deeper kind of answer to that. Why? Why not just show up as God, walk around? You know, poke in and out of reality whenever you want. Do all the things God can do without even thinking about it or working up a sweat. Why not just appear that way? Why take on human flesh? Why become incarnate? And of course, his section here is called Born to Die. (laughs) That's what you would answer. I think that's what every Christian would answer. But I want to take that a step deeper hearkening back to the entire story of the Bible. And by story, I don't mean fiction. I just mean the narrative. The day you eat that flesh or that fruit, you will die. And Adam didn't die when he ate that fruit. And I think Jesus's incarnation is to pay that debt. And you know that instantly. You know that's right. Mm-hmm. That's what Romans 5 says, for instance. But that's why, right? It's That is the core of the entire narrative. Right. That's the core, central core of all the conflict. God's going to settle that. So that's why he's the second Adam. <clears throat> so anyway, so then... You know, in Packer's exposition of that subject, he's referring to Philippians 2, which is good. Um, And 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So, in other words, there, there is a purpose for the the poverty in the early gospel accounts that Jesus was born into. So, you know, I don't like it when people quote the Phillips translation. Do you? Um, I'm not real familiar with the Phillips translation. Yeah. Okay. So then he goes into what we know of from the classrooms as the kenosis, 
right? So he's going to go into Philippians chapter two that we <coughs> that we read and talk about the what did he empty himself of when he took on uh, human flesh? How how do you answer that question? Well, that's a good that's a good thing to think about because if he's fully God, then he didn't empty himself of his omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. You know, yeah, not his attributes. Yeah, and so um, how did how did he suppress it? Because there's in places where it says you know he knew what they were thinking. Right. Right. Um, and and so it also says that he grew in one of the gospels as as yep. a child. He grew Luke. in Luke and yep. knowledge and so so yeah, it's that's hard to wrap your head around how he lived yeah. how did he limit himself if he's fully God and he's I'll say back to being in heaven and fully God again. So he didn't change. Yeah, I think you're so close, especially the way you phrase that last part. I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, it struck me as well when you said Luke, you know, he grew in certain things as he aged, as he matured and so on. So, you know, one way to look at the synoptic accounts is that they're kind of presenting Jesus, we might say, in a street way, because I'm a man of the street, Hampton. We might say they're presenting Jesus from the ground up, whereas the Gospel of John is presenting Jesus from heaven down. No, that's good. I thought of that. And that, that's, that's pretty clear that they're doing that. So that's one way to think about it. But when you said, okay, he's back to heaven. So I, I would say what he emptied himself of was his position. So as a servant on earth, he doesn't use his attributes the same way he would use them in heaven. You can still see them, but they're not used the same way. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's his position, right? And his position in heaven is above everything. He serves the father. The son's always in obedience to the father, but there's nothing that outranks him in heaven. So on earth, he he uh, he doesn't have that same position. Right. He has the position of a faithful servant under God's direct will. He can't do anything other than what God would let him do. So that that's what he emptied himself of: his position, not his essence. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. So he he goes over that for I don't know three or four, five six pages. Um, but you just summarized it, so you don't. Have yeah, to I just it. summarized. It. So let's let's move on. So he says he, that sentence. The impression, in other words, is not so much one of deity reduced as of divine capacities restrained. Yeah, restrained. He's in a different position. Right. So, so for instance, you know, imagine our understanding of corporations. He's not the CEO during his earthly ministry. Mm -hmm. He has all those resources, but he's not the CEO. He's like the mailboy, the guy in the mail room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. that's one way to, one way to look at it. So <clears throat> he became poor is uh, Packer's next section. We already know that. So how about if we leave it there? Yeah. That's Packer's chapter on uh, the incarnation of Christ. So the whole book is knowing God. So that's a big step in that. What do you think? So I think about this. <clears throat> Let's take Packer's basic premise and we'll wrap up with this. Um, how do you progress? in your journey as a Christian here till you're taken up to heaven to be with God till you transition. How, how do you progress in that? Which I think take a coaching position. How are you going to tell someone to 
increase their faith, to increase their walk with God, you know, their fellowship with him? How do they grow? How are you going to do that? I think it's important to read the scripture and to think about, you know, you memorize a verse, you think about it as the day goes on, whatever, and keep your mind focused on that. Um, that keeps you more in tune with God. Well, I, I would certainly say that as well. So I would say, read it and do it. And that's it. I don't think there are any shortcuts to that. Read it and do it. You know, like the, the swimmers. Twelve one, present your body's a living sacrifice. There's the, you read it, now go do it. Yeah, therefore, that starts with therefore, right? Right. So how big is that therefore? Well, that's 11 chapters worth. Yeah, that's the, the first given these first 11 chapters now do this. So that's the reading and the doing. So, you know, I got a coach this afternoon. You know what we're going to do? Swim back and forth. <laughs> of course, of course, there's really <laughs> there's details of that. Right. We're going to work on flip turns, starts, you know, stroke taking. But basically, we're going to swim back and forth just like we did yesterday, just like we did Monday. So it's the same thing for growth in the Christian faith. There's no shortcuts. Right. You got to read it and do it every day, all the time. I do miss those days when I used to go swim with the team in the eighth lane. <laughs> well, I always made it a point to walk over there and say something to you now and then. Yeah. See, I know you think that's a backstroke, but... <laughs> Yeah, about the only part of that I can recognize is that you're upside down. So that must be backstroke. <laughs> but other than that, I'm not so sure. But then couldn't you say that about my golf game? Like, I can tell you're trying to golf given the <laughs> fact that you're holding a golf club. But from that swing, I can't recognize anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot. I will talk to you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.